I like to challenge myself. If you do a feature film, you're on it for six months, nine months. There's a certain pace to that. There's a certain day-to-day that you're doing things. When you when I stop doing those, I look for commercials or these other opportunities where I'm cutting a two-minute spot in 48 hours because of an event that they're talking about just happened and we have to make it visible. And that's an extremely different challenge and a different set of skills that you have to have as an editor. Hello and welcome to another episode of Cut to Reveal podcast where we discuss the editing art form and all the hurdles of that career path. Today, Peter talks with Vashi Nedomansky. Peter, tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, hey everyone. So you probably know his name. Vashi is widely known, I think, in the industry. And he's also a member of American Cinema Editors. He's just well accomplished. That's what I can say. And he's widely known for Vashi Frames, the concept of putting every shot from a film on one single deck, one single board. But, you know, we talk about all the film, films filmmaking. So not only about Vashi Frames, uh, but about his documentary, Big Net, that he's working on. And I'm super mm-hmm. excited to see, to see yeah. it when it comes out. Me too. Um, and about other like filmmaking, editing related things that are golden nuggets, I think. Like there are a few golden nuggets there for sure. So yeah, let's let's just, you know, cut to it. Very glad to have you here. So thank you for joining. My pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. You know how much I love talking about you know, filmmaking and, and everything else. So we do. Yeah, I'm that's, prone that's to rambling. I want to start with um, asking you about your journey from Czechoslovakia to to where you're right now. Where you are right now? I was born in in Czechoslovakia during um, the communist times, in the middle of the Cold War, which apparently has returned, and uh, it's kind of you know obviously scary for everyone. But um, when I was four years old, my parents defected from Czechoslovakia and we moved to Toronto first and then Detroit and all over North America. My father was a professional hockey player and the first player to defect from a communist country and play in the National Hockey League. And uh, he was actually just inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame a year and a half ago. And so that was the reason we could get out. We escaped, um, chased by all the bad guys all over all over Europe. And then we finally got to, to Canada and to safety. But uh, it was actually once we got here, you know, I grew up playing hockey with my dad and watching him and everything. My mother was a photographer, and so she was always photographing everything. So I learned basically photography, the basics of camera work, you know, everything from framing to exposure, ISO, all that kind of stuff, depth of field. So I was usually her little subject. So she would shoot me, and then I would see the photos, and then I would slowly understand. And she would also take me to see movies because we didn't speak English. We're playing, you know, living in North America. My dad's gone playing hockey. So my mom would always take me every weekend to at least two or three movies. And so from the age of literally five or six, because she wasn't going to leave me at home, you know, she'd take me to the movies. And I'm watching everything from, you know, Woody Allen to Godard to Hitchcock to whatever's playing, you know. And if there was subtitles, it was even better for her because she could, you know, hear it in the original language and read the words. Yeah. So for about, you know, 10 years from the age of four, every weekend was just watching movies. So I had this internal indoctrination into filmmaking and an appreciation of cinema. And a lot of those topics in the films I shouldn't be seeing as a five-year-old, as you can imagine. (laughs) Um, But so, you know, I got to see everything early. And I believe in like osmosis when you're dealing with your creativity and and all the things that you input into yourself and it gets stored in your brain and you can pull it out 
if you're practicing and training this, that I can still remember those movies. I can still remember scenes or shots or responses from the audience. And that I think was the start of my building up your internal mechanism to understand what cinema is, understand what filmmaking is, and then trying to apply it to the, the part of the craft that you best connect with. And for me at that age, it started with editing because that was the first time you can start creating something, like literally creating something. And again, back to my parents, my dad was the first star of a hockey game and he won a VHS camera, big shoulder mount one that's like 15 pounds and a VHS deck that you put on the side of your hip. It weighed like 40 pounds together. The battery lasted maybe 35 minutes and I was tasked with shooting birthday parties, with holidays. If we went on a trip, I would shoot stuff. And so I'm 12 years old and I'm just shooting random things, using what I knew from photography, trying to capture emotion now. And then when I got back home with the footage, I realized, and this is, I've talked to so many editors and you know, I've trained and worked with so many other editors. This is very, very common. And I'm sure you've even done a version of this where I had a VHS at home and I had the VHS camera with its own VHS hook them up together. And then I realized I can now edit non-linear. I can take one piece from the one camera, fast forward it, record it onto the second VHS, rewind it, get another shot, play that in order. So I pick the order of the shots. That was the moment I realized like, A, I was film editing, um, but I didn't call it that. I just called it storytelling, which I think is the bigger image of what it is because you're making those creative decisions and you're using the technologies that are available to you at that time to help make it. And the culmination of that, after a couple of years in, in high school, I asked my English teacher, I was doing a book report. I said, can I do a short film instead of a written book report? Five minutes max. And the teacher was very progressive, Mr. Duggan, actually. Mm-hmm. And he allowed me to go do that. So I cast my friends. I shot it in my backyard um, over a weekend. I cut it. I added music, sound effects, and then I showed it in class. And anyone who's created something across any art form, if you present your work and you get a positive response, you get some laughs, you get some, you know, just people obviously enjoying it, that's extremely addictive. And it's very positive reinforcement that we all get. And when you get it early, yeah, you get it early, you want more of it. You're like, I want to do that again, but bigger and better and different topics. So that was my journey to like my, through my childhood of like, Understanding that I love the craft of filmmaking, understanding that I knew how to edit, and now I knew how to tell a story. And at the same time, I went, I played professional hockey when I graduated from college. I went to the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. I played hockey there for four years, and I played professionally for 10 years. And then during those 10 years, I was always either writing scripts or shooting short films, obviously seeing movies as much as I can, reading scripts, and just preparing for that time when my Hockey career, which is its own entity and its own restrictiveness and physical limitations of how long you can play, mm-hmm. you got to write that out. I knew I could make, I could be a filmmaker forever, but hockey in a, <laughs> at a professional <laughs> setting, you know, is a whole nother world. And I was with the New York Islanders organization and the LA Kings and, you know, played for 10 years. And when I retired, literally the next day, I'm like, I'm a film editor. I'm in Los Angeles. Get the word out. I will cut anything. I need work. I need jobs. I need experience. I need connections. And literally the day I retired, the next day I was out there trying to pimp myself out as uh, I'm your editor. I can do whatever you guys, whatever story you want told, I can cut it. What the story, man. What the story. And how, how did you get to edit your first feature film? Because that's something like, you know, many people struggle with. I haven't edited my minority feature yet. 
So I'm wondering, like, how, how, how did you get? It always starts with, like, obviously doing a smaller project. And I was yeah. making my own short films in L.A. I was shooting and, and cutting music videos for bands, really bad, like, web episodes. People were trying to be comedians or acting, you know, doing their own short films. So I'd shoot and cut that. And I was doing a lot of it for free because I didn't have a reel. And I had to get some something to work with. And I had some friends that were in the industry that were on TV and stuff. So by working with them, I can get a familiar face on some of my work. <laughs> and I showed something to a friend. And he says, oh, you got to come in and meet my boss. He needs an editor. And I'm, sure, I'm sure you'd like him. And that was uh, David Zucker, the director of Airplane and you know Naked Gun and all that stuff. So I went to meet him. And he's like, I got all these spot skits and spots and commercials and ideas I want to work with. So I worked with him for a year and a half, creating all these advertisements and political ads. At that point, it was for the Republican Party, for Zucker. And they were just funny, like those skitty, exactly like visual gags, one after another. And it was really fun. I learned a lot about comedy editing from him because like, he's the master of like knowing what you need and, and all his rules. He has like 21 rules for comedy. And it's a great article. I'm actually going to share that. I'm going to go interview him and have him ex expand on that and also update it. That's say what, cool. what's changed, you know, what's changed since the eighties in terms of comedy. So learning that, like almost all of the, what I learned from him was take out all the air, like no, no shoe leather, no gaps, just cook, just go, go, go. Don't make him wait for anything. Mm -hmm. And then I said, I thought I was being really smart. I'm like, Oh, but obviously after a joke, you leave a nice gap so that people can laugh and appreciate it. He goes wrong. That's not what you do. You don't put a gap because then they don't hear it. Then they're going to come back and watch a movie again. So they hear it the second time. So that's what he told me. He literally said no air. If they're laughing, that's great. If they missed it, they can come back and watch it later. So that was something, you know, I was trying to be all cool. Yes, I know the rules. No, I didn't know the rules. None of us do. And that's the point. That's the point. You have to either be handed that by someone or you do it 10 different ways incorrectly and then do it one way correctly and go, it. oh, mm -hmm. there it is. That's what mm -hmm. that's what I should have done. Yeah. So after the commercials with David, I had uh, I had edited a couple independent films in L.A., you know, just 90 minute features. The people are funding for 150 grand, 250 grand. I got my feet wet with those. But then David asked me to cut his his next feature film, which was. Um, an American Carol, which was, again, it's like conserv conservative comedy, making fun of everyone. And it didn't do too well. But again, the experience of working with him, being able to cut Dennis Hopper was in the film. I mean, I had Leslie Nielsen in one of his last roles. So all of these heroes that I knew growing up, growing up, I'm cutting them and I'm watching all the raw footage. Dennis Hopper, he's there. He's playing a judge. I get to watch him interact and what happens before the take and after the take. Yeah. And so as a learning experience, working for a studio to cut a feature film for David Zucker. That was my biggest break at that point. That was 2008, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So that was the first. And then since then I've cut another seven or eight feature films. And then in between, I love cutting commercials and again, music videos and all that kind of stuff. I'm cutting some commercials this upcoming week for a national yeah. campaign, some four spots. And what's really funny is with Zucker cutting the conservative ads, this last year or 2020 for the election, I cut all the Don Winslow ads. I don't know if you saw them on Twitter and everywhere else. Don Winslow is an author that did not want Trump to get elected. And so there were all these you know, campaign ads. So I did a dozen <laughs> ads in like two months running up to the election just to show people a different viewpoint. So as an editor, you have to tell a story that the client wants. And I've worked on both sides 
politically. And it's, it's really interesting and really fun because, you know, you're, you are manipulating people. You're giving information. But the one thing with Don Winslow, I said, I will do it for you. He doesn't take donations. He's not trying to make money for himself. He just wants a message delivered. I said, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to use the kids of any of the yeah, families, yeah. whatever. And yeah, I want to make yeah. it cinematic and set a visual style so it looks of the same world. So it's not just like random images and stuff. Mm-hmm. And he agreed to all that. And then, you know, we did 12, 12 spots. And each spot had like five or six million views in like two days. So that was insane to get that kind of feedback and response. Again, editing. <laughs> on a very tight schedule. So again, again, it just cutting and editing and it's all that fun. kind of stuff. And any opportunity I get, I, I love to it to do it. Mm-hmm. And I like to challenge myself. If you do a feature film, you're on it for six months, nine months. There's a certain pace to that. There's a certain day to day that you're doing things. When you when I stop doing those, I look for commercials or these other opportunities where I'm cutting a two minute spot in 48 hours because of an event that they're talking about just happened and we have to make it visible. And that's an extremely different challenge and a different set of skills that you have to have as an editor. Totally different than, than the narrative editing where you have like plenty of time. Yeah, totally different. Totally. I, different. Like, I, I, I like how you set the rules to, for, for the collaboration. Yes, yeah. So no lies. I have to have attribution for everything that we're saying. Like I need to see the source and know the source and then obviously no kids and then cinematic. So I thought that was um, important. And I, I was also trying to tell him, I'm not just... An editor, you call and say, cut this stuff. I'm a collaborator. I want to yeah. be part of the message. I want, I want to set these boundaries to make it a level playing field so no one could criticize any of the ads for any reason in terms of that's a lie or whatever. Didn't want my name associated with that at all yeah. unless we were 100% accurate. Talking about setting the rules, uh, you have this list of seven uh, commandments, right? Which I love. I do agree with them. I live by them. But the first one is something that I want to discuss a little bit more because I find it a little bit more like controversial. That's <laughs> like, fine. That's good. Not everyone yeah. should agree with every rule. That'd be boring as hell. Yeah. So let's go. Let's name it. So it's watch every frame, frame of the footage, of raw footage, at least twice, then start. And I agree that it's a luxury to have such an option to, have to, to watch every frame of the footage twice. But at the same time, it's probably not uh, possible for many editors. And also, like, you know, the very reason why we actually create select reels is to give us a way to, to kind of, like, you know, uh, not watch the stuff that won't be usable for the second time. So, yeah, I, just your commentary on that, I guess. Yeah, no, sure. Um, I agree with you completely that every job is different and the time frames a lot associated with those jobs can be wildly varying from a lot of free time to two-day turnaround. Um, for example, a national commercial, a 30-second spot, you might get 10 hours of footage and it's due in three days. So you're like, so you're going to, am I saying I spend 20 hours of that looking at the footage twice before I start cutting? No, I can't on that one. I can go by the director's notes. I can go by his selects, his circle takes. I can go right to the last shot in every series, put that in as a starting point, and share that with the director, the producer, or the company. That's always a starting point, you know, that's that's rational and good. I just like to get my brain and my hands and my heart, like my emotions around the footage. Um, and even if it is a commercial for a car, like I did a VW campaign, like four, four separate spots. And I wanted to see every, like, they're sliding and turning and Tokyo drifting <laughs> everywhere. But I want to see what, what was the best one. And there's an hour of, of them just drifting. 
And I'm like, well, I'm going to watch the whole hour because I want literally the best camera move that goes with the best car move with the best mm -hmm. lighting. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking for that. I could have easily just gone to the last one and put it in, but I found, you know, 10 minutes in of a one hour run, you know, the perfect one. It's yep. definitely budgeting your time, which is a huge, huge thing an editor has to understand and know and have a grasp of budgeting yep. time. When is something due? What are the expectations of that when it's due? What can I realistically do in that time frame that will give me, will make me look good and make them happy? And then I can try and work around something after the fact. So it's a huge balancing act. Yeah, I think I've heard uh, Tom Cross saying the same thing. When, when he's under the time pressure, he usually goes with the, one of the last takes. So he watches the select, his select reels from the end. And then once he has the, the take is, that is usable, he uses that as a rough cut. But later in the process, once you have the, he has all of the rough cuts for all the scenes, he tries to go, go back and watch all of the takes. Because very often, like, you know, the first take is actually the one that is most, most natural, uh, natural, right? Because It's the instinct well, of the actor. Exactly. Especially when it's an actor, if it's a single exactly. or something, then they're doing something. Yeah, so that's super important. Actually, I talked to Tom at the Ace Eddie's was it two, two weeks ago, I got mm -hmm. to go have a chat with him. If you ever want to see 500 editors in, in like a five floor crazy bar restaurant, I don't think I've ever seen that much alcohol being consumed at one time. It was beautiful. 500 editors all running around out of our cages, being out in public. It was, uh, it was awesome. We're such solitary creatures a lot of the time, but boy, we can rip shit up if we need to. I was proud of my fellow editors, my fellow ace editors. I like the way you put it. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about Vashi frames because that's something you came up with. Uh, I think like, you know, uh, you got well known for. So what's your reason, you know, to start doing this? Like what was your yeah, thinking when you made it the first one? Right. I've been doing it for, I think, almost 10 years now. And I hadn't seen anyone else doing it. And And you're the first person to attempt the, the, a similar approach. And there's many ways to create them. But I think what's more important behind it is the reason why I make them and then what they actually can share and teach you if you're a filmmaker or not even a filmmaker. If you're just or if, if you like colors, there's one yep. thing like I made the West Side Story, you know, Spielberg's film. There's 1500 shots and there's a complete different color palette at the beginning and in the middle. And at the end, you can really visually spot changes in scene, changes in location, Um, shot size. Are there a lot of close-ups? Are there a lot of wide shots? Some films I watched literally like um, The Shining is only 660 shots, complete individual shots. You know, West Side Story is 1500. I'm finishing off JFK, which I think to this day, I think still think is the best edited feature film of all time mm -hmm. that I've seen. Mm -hmm. There's over 4,500 individual shots in JFK. And that was, you know, they filmed on Super 8 millimeter, 16, videotape, 35 millimeter, digital. All those things were transcoded to a certain extent and then edited together, then exported back out to film. But the reason I do it is, as an editor, I like to break things up like and see what's going on on the innards, right? Mm -hmm. So a feature mm -hmm. film, you're like, yeah, it's an hour and a half. You ask someone how many average shots, number of shots, they don't know. It's around 1,400, you know, across all genres, if you just say, a feature, two hour feature film, you know, has 1,400 shots. That's a good average. Some have more, some have less. Annie Hall won the best picture with 349 individual shots. Oh. The reason I did this was 
why is Annie Hall so good as a movie? And it only had 349 shots. How can it win the Oscar for best film? What does that mean? It means the shots are really long. It means their shots are like, I think it averaged like 25 seconds a shot. So when I make a Vashi frame, the first thing I can look at is the colors, the pacing, the shot size, the costumes, whatever. Then I could see the pacing of the film, how many shots versus how long it is. And I've been calculating average shot length, again, just for myself to be like, why do I like this movie? And then are there factors that I can reverse engineer to understand why it works and why that movie sits well with me? And my conclusion to all this process was definitely I like long, I like films that have longer shot times. The average shot time right now is about three seconds for a feature film, average. Uh, you know, people like Paul Thomas Anderson average 17 seconds, yeah, you know, yeah. a shot. Yeah. Spielberg is like eight seconds a shot across his yeah. whole career. So I've, I've, I like movies that have a little more breadth, a little more air. Like when you're watching something, you can really live in it. There's times for fast cutting. There's times for letting the shot play out. And those are all decisions of the editors. So by reverse engineering these films, making the Vashi frame, it gives me a helpful tool to answer some of those questions for myself and see what registers and what connects with me for my own projects and my own styles. And so it's just quantifying filmmaking, which is a vastly arrogant statement, but it's quantifying certain elements that can yeah, be quantified. I get it. When, when I made the first one uh, for the beta test, uh, Jim Cummings film, uh, he, you know, the thing that you don't see behind Vashi frames uh, is that, that you have the timeline with the, the, the cuts on it, right? And you can recognize the cutting patterns. So, for example, like, you know, there was a moment that there was a cutting pattern that he used a few times throughout the films, throughout the film, where he cuts like to, to a shot that is like three frames in duration, just to get this moment of like uh, getting out of the, the, the character's head. So there is a shot, a long shot, where we get kind of like into what he's thinking, what he's doing. And then we get this bah, abrupt. Uh, and, and this is a cutting pattern that he like, you know, redoes. Yeah, you can see it. You can see it on the timeline. Like, you know, it, it's just like copy paste in a few places, right? So that's that's something that like, yeah. <laughs> with my with my Vashi frames, like each image is like, you know, 1920 by 1080. So... It's a huge, I do mine in Photoshop. I do it in, in DaVinci Resolve with scene auto detection. Yeah. Then I lower the, the bar so I can see more cuts. But the biggest part of it is that takes maybe 25 minutes or half an hour. But then I scroll through the entire film and I pick the best portion of every shot because it, some shots, a door is closed. When on the, on the start of the shot, a door opens, someone stands there and delivers a line. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to show the door. I'm going to show the moment of like the guy or the actor entering frame. Cause that's the shot we recognize. That's what we know. Mm-hmm. So I do that for every shot. And then I remove flash frames. If there's a dissolve, you have to add a cut because it won't, none of those, none of the AI will catch a dissolve and even dark rooms, dark lighting. It won't catch many of the cuts. And if there's a center framed actor and there's reverse, another actor doesn't see that. So yeah. I'm glad that you're taking your time because for me, I'm making sure this is the most accurate representation of a film that every cut is counted for. Every shot is there that was in the film. It's not some half-assed thing. I'm like, hey, look, I made a cool image. This is a tool. This is knowledge. And I yeah. want it, every one of them to be perfect. And that's why I take that much time. Um, some of the longer films will take me eight or 10 hours to do. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. you know, in, like Tenant or, you know, Godfather, you know, there's, Shots, you know, some approaching 2,000 shots. It takes a long time to pick the right frame. 
and I want it to be accurate. So when you zoom in, you're basically just reminding people when they see a scene, they're like, I know every shot in that scene, you know, but if you have the wrong part of the, of the frame, they're like, what, what scene is that? I don't even recognize it. I just find it so like illuminating and so cool. And I have so many people that reach out, please, I cut that film. Can you send me the file? And I'll just send them like the Photoshop file, which is really nice when other editors are like, I need that in my edit bay. Like I'm so proud of the film and now yeah. it's every shot. That's, you know, can you send it to me? I'm like, yeah, of course. Yeah. So yeah. I'm, uh, I am in negotiations of trying to uh, work out some deals to be able to sell them because everyone, everyone wants to buy it. And obviously yeah. I can't yeah. sell I can't sell it without uh, some kind of agreement. So um, yeah. I'm getting closer to that, which would be wonderful because yeah. so many people want it. Like, you know how it is. You show yours. Yeah. I saw your tweets and people are like, that looks insane. What? Oh my God, I, I'm going to do my own. Like, and they yeah. go to start yeah. doing it. So it's like, a, yeah. you know, yeah. everyone's yeah. trying it and, and everyone has their favorite film. You know, it speaks to, to whatever film really speaks to you that you like, that's the one they want to go do. And then it's also a sense of accomplishment. Like you feel like you've done something and there's a reward and there's an actual document that you get to share and analyze and do whatever with. Yeah. I love Vashi frames. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I love doing it. I love Vashi frames as well. Yeah. <laughs> okay, man. Uh, I want to change the topic to Big Net because that's the film you're working on right now, uh, right? That's a film about your father. And um, yeah, I, 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 I don't even have like a very specific question here because I don't know what is the, uh, you know, the, the part of the process you're on right now, right now. And like, Basically, how, how do you go about, you know, bringing it to life? I, I, by, now, by now, I know that you already have a lot of archival footage because you are the one and your mother, like, took a lot of pictures. And so that's, that's, that's the source that you, that you have. But, like, you know, what is the way you are going to bring it to life? So, you know, doing a documentary about your father, who's a you know, famous hockey player, all that stuff, defector, you know, it's his story, but it's also my story because we all defected and we all, you know, had to make these enormous life changes. Yeah. But what I wanted to make the story about was put it this way. It's a, I'm the directing, I'm the editor, I'm the everything cinematographer. Yeah. So I'm doing a film about my father who happened to be a hockey player. I make a, just a hockey documentary. No one wants to watch that. There has to be <laughs> much, much more to a documentary than literally what the guy is or what the, the subject is and their linear story. So I decided to make something a lot bigger. The story is, is set in the cold war. And at its essence, it's literally a look at capitalist versus communist systems in the 70s and 80s, because how people are treated in each system can be good or bad, how the world was changing at that time was good and bad, how my father is an immigrant coming to North America is looked at like a spy, a communist, you know, even people <laughs> on some of his teams didn't like him. He didn't speak English. He's coming to America, taking a job from a Canadian or a North American. So all of these components popping up and me remembering all these little things is what I wanted to tell the story. And when I initially started working on this film about four years ago, five years ago, and I've been asking all my other friends that do documentaries are like, how long? They're like eight years it took me. Mm -hmm. it took eight years between funding and everything else all the way around. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm on like year five. And my dad's already, is it done? Can we, can we sell it? Can we see it? What's going on with the film? How's my story look? I'm like, dude, I'm getting close. Trust me. <laughs> so creatively, I'm almost there. Logistically and legally, another component that filmmakers have to deal with is the biggest challenge in terms of using, paying for NHL rights usage for the footage when my dad's playing for the Detroit Red Wings or the New York Rangers. Um, all of that is 
insanely high. And when I started the process, I went to some of the biggest TV companies, all, all the companies you would expect to, that would want to be involved. All of them were extremely interested. All of them had the budget to match my thing. All of them wanted to attach a producer, an editor, a team to travel with me. And I'm like, so we're going to go to Czechoslovakia. You're going to send two producers that don't speak Czech, a camera crew, and the money goes out of the budget goes for flying them there. Why? Why would I do that? Like, and they're like, oh, and, and you need to be in the film too. You should be on camera and it should be linear and nice and easy so everyone can understand it. I'm like, you guys don't get what I'm trying to do. Like, that's the polar opposite, you know. And the responsibility of telling a family member's story in, in both a engaging, creative way and an authentic way, you know, what can you reveal? What can't you reveal? Do you want to piss your dad off? Do you want to make the story extra entertaining by telling something? That's a huge struggle, uh, you know, during the storytelling process. So those are the things I've been balancing and juggling with. So creatively, I'm almost there. And the most important part was that 90% of the documentary is archival. And all that footage has never been seen. And we're talking, I went to the Hockey Hall of Fame in Toronto. And they allowed me to go through their archives and pull footage that's never been scanned, never been telecinied. So I have like literally four and five K scans of all the archival footage in the, in the film, in the documentary, plus my mom's archives of all her photography over 25 years. So it's almost all archival. And again, I thought it was important as a viewer, when I'm telling the story is to insert the person back into the cold war, insert them back into the seventies and eighties with, I mean, I have television commercials from Czechoslovakia from like 1971 as almost like interstitials as we're going from one section to another, just to place you there without having to hammer you over the head. You know, I want it to be a, a flowing experience. It's a wild ride. A lot happens, multimedia. And that's my approach to try and make it something like that. And no talking heads. That was the other reason that I, I couldn't go with the uh, producers and the stations and the networks. They're like, we'll interview your dad. We'll get all that stuff. I'm like, I don't want to see all my dad's friends and him at 75 saying, oh, well, then this one day I remember, I don't care. I hate that. I hate that. Look at like, let look when, like when, um, when the Beatles get back came out, I'm like, there, there's the thing I've been saying for five years. I've been trying to accomplish. I'm just, you know, getting more shots and more funding, but that's the perfect representation of something where you just feel like you're there with them. Obviously that was very specific. The footage was perfect. They documented the entire run of recording that album I don't have that luxury because we're traveling all over the place, but the intent and the feel is what I'm going for in that aspect of transporting a person back to a time they may not know of, or they might remember, or they heard of, but make it feel authentic and make it feel real with the real footage that happened at that time. So everyone is at the peak of their game. Everyone is, is the young immortal, you know, and that's what I want to represent in the film. You're on your own with that project, right? I had a second uh, cinematographer that I went with. We shot a lot of Super 8 and, and Super 16 ourselves. For certain things that we're trying to duplicate the actual footage that was shot there, I, I've shot maybe four hours of Super 8 and Super 16. It's all scanned. Everything from my father today holding magazines and newspapers from that era, from the actual mm-hmm, stuff. Mm-hmm. So you mm-hmm. see his hands, you don't see his face. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a technique that I'm using that it really is him. And it's filmed on Super 8, so it looks like it's from the 70s, but it's him. Like, you know, so I, I find that that conceit functional for me as yeah. being real. It's really my dad. You just can't see his face, so you can't see that he's 75, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. 
and you're seeing all the the cards and photos and magazines. And it's just, it's a very, I find it a very like personal approach to be like right over his shoulder, looking at what he's looking at. Yeah. 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 By the way, how did you kind of come up with the, with the idea actually? For the whole film or for the approach? Yeah, for the whole film. For the whole film. I just felt that it was, it was time to, to tell his story. Everyone in my whole life, you know, playing professional hockey with my father already in the, in the world, everyone's like, oh, your dad or your yeah. dad's story is amazing. That should be a movie. That should be a movie. Mm-hmm. 20 years of that. Mm-hmm. And then finally being in a position where I can fund it, I can shoot it, I can cut it. I can, I have access to footage archival that was never available before. I reached out to some friends in, in Czech Republic. I got the archives from their sports in the sixties that again, no one's ever seen. Once I realized I had all the pieces, I had to decide on the storytelling approach, how it's going to be cut, how it's going to be presented. And then everything else kind of fell into place. So I have, you know, the whole wall with all the cards. I know exactly what's going to happen when, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. but, but every time, and as an editor, you'll, you'll appreciate this. Every time you're cutting something and you find some new footage, you're like, this will fit right here perfectly. And then I don't need yeah. this. And I don't need this photo. I can replace that. But wait, now I got another piece. Well, that's going to shift everything. Now I got to shift that all over there. And then we'll go, okay, well, I got to rework this now. Like literally one, one piece of footage can change the complexion of the entire edit. Oh, yeah. And so it's such a fluid matrix of, mm-hmm. of editing, no matter what, like, you know, documentaries more so than narrative, you know, than scripted stuff um, because there are no rules. And I laugh, like when you apply for a documentary loan from a grant or something, they're like, send the script. I'm like, are you out of your fucking mind? There's no script. Documentaries don't have scripts. They're changing every day. They're fluid. Come on, man. So that's the reason why. So I just realized it was time. And also my father had a really bad um, stage four cancer about eight, nine years ago that he survived. He's healthier now. And that was also, again, what, what, what so many people go through and so many people have to deal with, with usually bad endings or sad endings. He survived and I, and I want to tell his story for him and for everyone else. What are the odds? What are the odds of like you, you know, being the perfect person to tell that story and you happen to be like a film editor? <laughs> what are the odds? <laughs> I also want to, to ask you about you becoming ACA, a member, right? ACE member. Uh, because I'm wondering, like, what are the, the 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 things you have to like, you know, check on the list for for? So, do you, do you have to have like an American citizenship, or is it something that like anyone can, you know, uh, try to to accomplish? Ace as a group is, you know, it, it's not a guild; it's a invite only association of of like minded editors that are not only excellent film editors, but we're trying to promote the craft of film editing. We're yeah. trying to promote the technological advancement of, of this film film telling and filmmaking style that's very specific. It's one of the only crafts that were literally created, you know, a hundred years ago. There wasn't film yeah. editing or anything yeah. before. It has yeah. no yeah. other lineage, you know, besides yeah. this. And so the way to get into ACE is you have to be first submitted by two ACE members, have to submit in your name as just like as a starting point. Then you have to fill out like a 20-page application, which shows the work you've done. And there are obviously requirements in terms of how many months you've had to work on on feature films. And uh, right now, I think it's like 90 months total. Don't quote me, like it's somewhere around that. Mm-hmm. But that's like, you know, these are where you have to have pay stubs and and proof. You can't just say, oh, I, I cut 10 sure. films. Yeah. Where are they? Oh, they're, they're, they're unfinished, <laughs> but they're cut. They're great. So it has to be legitimate, like that component there. 
And then after you fill out your application, if they like your application, then you have to go in for an interview with about six current ACE editors. And you do that in person um, at the ACE office or on a studio somewhere. And they ask you about everything, your your approach to editing, what else do you do with your time? How would you promote it? Like all, all these questions, you never know. <laughs> and then after that, you you hear back from ACE. Um, and I was super proud that I got in um, you know, December, 2019, yeah. literally right before the pandemic, the craziness. Yeah. I was <laughs> graciously accepted and I was just beyond proud to be mm-hmm. one of, of many other editors that, that love storytelling, love promoting editing like we're doing here. Like this is super important. Yeah. You know how many people still don't know what an editor does. Yeah, obviously. How many people have no concept of, oh, you cut out the bad stuff or, oh, you just slap some stuff yeah. together. Yeah. No concept of the politics of the cutting room, the, you know, just the time exuded into it, the, the skill sets beyond film editing that you have yeah. to have, like sound, yeah. music, art, textures, like all, all these things are components of an editor that can help you if you put the time in. So I'm trying to do my part to just shine a light on film editing and the storytelling craft and show people behind the scenes of what it's really like to be an editor. And that's what I use like, you know, my Twitter and stuff for. That's why I share these insane facts and informations, which appear cool on by themselves, but are part of a bigger thing. You know, when taken all in whole, when you see, oh, Deadpool, I worked on that for nine months. 555 hours of raw footage, right? That's insane. That's a lot of footage. If you watch that twice before you start editing, this film would still not be out in theaters. It'd still be (laughs) in in, an editorial. But those are like numbers that most people don't think about. By the way, do documentary features count to that, like, you know, experience time as well? Yeah, uh, yeah. documentary features, as long as they're feature length, meaning for for documentaries that have to be more than 60 minutes, I believe. Feature films Mm -hmm. have to be 72 or whatever. They don't, commercials don't count in terms of ACE. There's definitely rules and they are always shifting the rules slightly. So, but if you go to ACE, you know, ACE, American Film Cinema Editors, they have the requirements there. It's nice just to look like, and to be honest, I have to thank my wife because she was the one like, you should, you should talk to your other friends at ACE and you should try and get a submission in and get your application. I'm like, I, I know I have the qualifications, but like, that's so like, that's like the highest level of everything. And like, I'm not. They wouldn't want someone like me. And then I filled it out and everything went great. And they were so happy to have me. I'm like, yeah, I thanked her. Cause like, literally I yeah. wouldn't have done it. I would have been like, I got to put my, more time in. I got to do this. Even I though I was way past the, I had blown past the specs that I needed to get in, but there's the whole other thing of like the importance of that, of that position. And then, you know, giving that information back to other people and helping other people, mentoring, giving feedback to everyone. I mean, it's so much. And I've been lucky enough over the last four or five years, I've always used Adobe Premiere Pro for like the last 20 years. Yep. And uh, probably one of the best parts of the whole thing was Adobe hired me to train other ACE editors that wanted to learn Premiere or had started a project and they never oh. cut on it. Mm-hmm. So over the last three or four years, I've trained 60 or 70 fellow wow. ACE editors, how to use Premiere, how to transition from like Avid to Premiere yeah. or whatever else you're cutting on. And I got to meet like literally my editing heroes and I'm teaching them something in terms of like, this is how this system works yeah. and here's how you didn't have it. Here's a, the same way doing it over here. And then hearing their stories from their editorials. I'm like, 
Tell me about Star Wars. Tell me about Raiders. Tell me about every film that I love. I got to talk to all these editors like one-on-one for, you know, days at a time. And what's really funny, you'll appreciate this. The older editors are the ones more apt to reach out and say, can I get training or can you show me how you cut on Premiere? Not the younger ones because the older ones literally don't want to be left out or they don't want to have a tool that's not in their toolbox. They're like, I need to learn because between the streamers and everything else, there's, I think, what, 800 shows right now on all the streaming channels and everything, 800 shows being in production. Every single one of them needs an editor and everything else. So they need to be ready. And that was really uh, enheartening. I really like that because sometimes the younger people are like, I don't need that. I'm just going to do this or, or, you know, I only cut on this. I'm like, all right, well, you're missing out on half the market. Like, you know, I've, I've cut feature films on Avid, Final Cut, yeah. Premiere Pro, it doesn't matter. Like, it's just, a, yeah. it's just an interface, just a tool. Um, yeah. I may have a preference, but the basic mechanics of film editing is literally six or seven mechanical steps in, yeah. out, insert, delete, ripple, you know, whatever. You, you keep doing that. And then just as long as you can control your footage, know where everything is, know what the intent of the scene is. The mechanical yeah. stuff is very simple and it's, you don't have to learn every component of every platform. Yeah, I know what you mean. I'm, I'm one of those people who will, you know, if they ask me, if opportunity comes my way and if they ask me like, do you edit on Avid? Even though I don't, I would say, yeah, yeah. I yes, just say yes, always. <laughs> every yes to every job. So yeah, oh no, I'm so fluent. I've been cutting on Avid for 15 years. And then go on YouTube. And then- yeah, exactly. At the moment, yeah, I'm, I'm at home again, right? I'm like, okay, let's let's do a crash course right away. <laughs> Talking about Premiere Pro, like, what are the things you would improve in that? Like, what, what are the things you you, you, you you know, we consider to be the problems with that software? I definitely think, and I think they're getting closer, but like something akin to like Script Sync and Avid, something where you can just unify mm-hmm. the script with the markers and the timeline that I hear from everyone. And because I'm talking to so many other editors, especially avid editors, they're like, that's what we need. Uh, that's what we, I, I need, especially for scripted TV or comedies where there's so many line readings, they need to see right away where stuff is. I mean, there's ways to get around that between how you set up your project and how we do our select roles and how I use the pancake timeline to <laughs> set up everything with my markers and everything else that I have no problem finding any footage right away. I'm like, I know exactly where it is. Or I just type, scene 12 and it goes there. I don't have a problem with that. There's many ways to get to that answer of term, in terms of that. That's the one thing that I don't personally need, but I do hear from other editors would, they would like it in Premiere Pro. But I don't think there's anything else bes- between the sound, the color, the, the VFX, everything else is better than anything I'm using. Like that's tip top for me. Like I have access to everything I need within the platform with Premiere Pro as the hub, going to audition for audio, After Effects for VFX, whatever else, Mocha, everything that's built in. Like I have all the tools there and I'm the fastest and most fluent in that. I'm the same. So I understand. <laughs> However, like I, I, I get it. I get a sense uh, that sometimes like uh, Adobe releases a feature and uh, they kind of release it in the beta version. Like it's not beta anymore because it's like out of beta process. But at the same time, like I, I feel like, you know, they, they should have put more attention into like, polishing these little details right about the workflow and that's that's something that's the impression i get like that sometimes like you know they're they're focusing more on uh things that will sell better 
rather than focusing the the attention of their uh, developers to to actually like you know polish the little details that make the the workflow you know I've, I've heard that I've heard that they're like don't yeah. release any updates just fix everything that's that's almost working or I whatever mean, yeah that, that's 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 a that's an extreme comment as well because like you have to release new things as well right so so but obviously it's a balance and I know that it's a huge challenge for for people out there to to actually like balance the thing and you know make it all sustainable as well financially and yeah I, I know it's a balance yeah <laughs> it is and I know I've been I've been lucky enough to interact with the the designers the developers for 15 years where I have direct access I can call and just bitch and moan if I want to like this sucks like you got to do something about that there's a priority list internally yeah. of like what's going to be addressed next there's a list yeah. of new functions that that are they're trying to get out that have to be developed and and properly executed and there's literally there's not enough time in the day to address everything all at once yeah, and keep moving yeah, forward that's but true. not at the scale but think, yeah but i've talked every editor i've talked to there's no company like adobe where you can lit, literally reach out and say this sucks or i hate this or whatever or actually get feedback or get something implemented. Like you can't do that at Apple or Avid. You can't call them and say, hey, we want this functionality. You won't, yeah. No one will answer yeah, the phone. And, true. you know, working on Gone Girl, you know, working with that, that editorial crew, there were 200, over 200 new features that were written. The code was written while we were editing in the studio. And the two Adobe employees were literally writing code during lunchtime, making new builds of Premiere Pro for wow. the entire nine months of Gone Girl to wow. help improve it. And the notes that they were addressing were coming directly from the ACE editors that were cutting the film. And so they were implementing that because Adobe wanted to keep Fincher happy and the editors happy. They implement that. Six months after the movie comes out, all 200 of those requests were in the public build of Premiere Pro. So those weren't made by an engineer that said, editors need a big red button right in the middle of the screen. No. Editors said, we want dynamic linking. Editors said, we want this mouse to do this or that. What editors wanted was what was implemented. And that's what I think was the biggest change. Like when that build after Gone Girl came out, I think 2014 or 2015, whatever it was, there were so many features that people were like, I didn't even know I needed that. So like, that's what I appreciate about Adobe. They, they do listen. They, will, they can't solve everyone's problem at every moment, but yeah. they're trying to make it a platform that is being designed by editors for editors with a slight, you know, corporate injection of whatever to make it look yeah, shiny yeah, and yeah. new, but the innards should work for an editor. And I don't know about you, but like I could open Premiere and cut anything so fast, like yeah, from the import, yeah. you know, import, da, 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 sequence, export. That's why I, I don't think I will be ever able to switch to anything else, even, even if I, like someone would convince me to do it because like, yeah, the efficiency, the efficiency. And what I love most about Premiere is how customizable it is. So, for example, Resolve, a powerful beast when it comes to color and things like that. But I can't customize my my, my, my work workspace uh, area, right? Like, it's, it's not something I can customize. I have to live with what they, like, you know, embedded into software. Uh, while while in Adobe, I can, like, you know, I can, I can set it up when, what, like, what, however I want to, right? And that's... Listen, that's, I got to cut. I Sometimes I have to cut on a 17-inch laptop. Yeah. In my main edit space, I have a 49-inch curved monitor, two 32-inch monitors and like a 65-inch plasma. Yeah. And only on Premiere can I like literally just stretch on the bottom screen, the 49 inches across. I can just stretch the timeline across all the way. Just drag yeah. the corner. That's it. Yeah. What, which, which panel do I want where? Yeah. And just save yeah. it. 
Yeah. Like with no restrictions, no like, oh, we can't do that. It has to be in that monitor. No. And so when I save all those workspaces and I go somewhere, I just fire it up. And it's such a good feeling. It's like you're always home. You're always on your most customized machine wherever you go. Love it. Exactly. Uh, the question that I always like to ask everyone, so I'll, I'll ask you as well. Uh, do you have like a favorite editing book, a filmmaking book? Like it has doesn't have, doesn't have to be editing. Specific. No, I mean, honestly, there's there's so many. The, the best is still Art of the Cut with Steve Hallfish. I think that's the best because that shows you inside the minds yeah. of the editors. It's, yeah. It tells you what their thought process is. It tells you how they approach problems. It tells you how they approach storytelling. Yeah. Um, You can, if you want to learn how to cut, get get the fucking manual for Premiere Pro or Avid, Just <laughs> yeah. go, or Da Vinci's like fifteen hundred page manual. Go scroll through yeah. that. That'll tell you how to cut. It won't tell you how to be a storyteller. It won't tell you how to be a film editor. Yeah. So I I would say yeah, Art of the Cut with Steve Hallfish. I'm in there too, so that's another reason. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. I think you are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But you're not the first one to to tell me that. Um, I talked to Simon Smith, the editor of Chernobyl. Uh, and a few other uh, high-profile themes at this point, and he he told me that his favorite one is Art of the Cult, Art of the Cult as well. So you're not the first one. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's the most comprehensive for the actual approach. Simon, I made the Chernobyl Fashi frame for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah, sent him yeah. that, Simon and is, he also wanted. Simon is cool, by the way. He's he's, he's so cool. He's yeah, awesome. yeah. He asked for one. He was one of the first. Can I get one for Chernobyl? And he goes, also, can you give me the 2001? Space Odyssey one, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'll send it to you. So, <laughs> yeah, he's also so he's a awesome. cinephile. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think all editors are like, you know, do you watch a lot of movies? Like, do you have time to watch movies or how, what's your approach? Yeah. For so, so, actually, I, I, I'm making more time uh, these days to watch movies because for the, for the last three years, I guess. So, from the moment I have two little kids and I used to, you know, uh, I used to work in the post-production house at, for, for almost two years, but then I transitioned to freelancing. And that freelancing period, at least that the, the first three years, were something that you know I, I wouldn't have time to watch many movies. So I watched very few. But the, but yeah, from a few months ago, I just started to make more time to make movies. And actually, the the project that I'm doing right now, the Vashi Frames Shot Deck project of 28 days is just to make myself watch some movies that I have on my watch list, actually, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm making more time these days to, to watch more, to consume more uh, of, of, of the things that, you know, are waiting in line in, on my watch list. <laughs> that's, that's super important. It's important because, like, for me, that's therapy. It's like I'm watching. Even if I rewatch, I'll listen just to the dialogue or listen to the score yeah, or yeah. I'll just do something. It's always playing yeah. in the background. I, I think I've heard that you actually uh, do play films in the background even when you're working, right? Like, is it something that you really do? Because I can't focus on, I, I have to, if, if I have film playing at, you know, at the right side of my head, I will just stay my head over there. I, there is no way I can avoid it. So No, I, I, I do that. I'll do that. Um, I've done that. I've seen other directors and stuff like David Zucker would do that. He would have a, like a movie playing mm -hmm. Scorsese apparently does it all the time. He has like literally TMC or like TBS or some kind of like old movie channel always playing in the side of the room. And I do believe, honestly, I felt it. It gives you like some kind of connection to the past. It feels like more important if that's playing <laughs> kind of makes you focus and be like, there's the bar. Where's your bar? My bar is like there. So, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so it kind of just like it, it's a, it helps you move forward, you know, it feels like it's giving you momentum because it's like in the room with you okay. and that's how I treat it, you know.
so films are definitely scores, definitely music or scores or film scores. I'll play all the time when I'm cutting or doing whatever. Yeah, yeah, film scores is yeah. I, I I listen to them as well when I'm doing like other things. But but I I don't know. I have to try watching like listening to a film actually while doing something. I I don't know. I I don't think I'm able to do it's it. It's not for time. everyone. It's not for everyone. <laughs> but it's 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 more of like it's it's just a trick to get you in the right frame of mind. Yeah, that's yeah, all. Yeah, and block yeah. out everything around you. It's like it's yeah. white noise to me. It's white noise because I know these <laughs> films and they're it's comfortable. Okay, man. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you for doing this with me. Of course. No, my uh, pleasure. I love that you've been doing this. I love that you're, again, helping shine a light on this because there's yeah. there's not too many editing podcasts and some of them are I don't care for or whatever. It's like, I think it's all about the person. I think you're doing a great job in terms of who you're picking and, and the subject that we're talking about. And again, the fact that you are an editor makes a huge difference. You're not looking for a story. You're just trying to share experiences and that's one of yeah. the most important things because we're all yeah. we're all in it together and we're all you know we have long days we have easy days but it's every day you know it's always right there okay thank you a lot thank you have, have a great a day one. i find it like super interesting that vashi is the best person to work on big net to create big net because it's about his father but also he has been telling stories for 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 years you know so mm -hmm. it's very uncommon that you have a father that is that that has this great story to tell right mm -hmm. uh, and you're the best person to tell that story and uh, not only as a son but also as a storyteller so that's super interesting and i just had a blast talking to him like he's yeah. such a great guy and totally. he's obviously much more accomplished than i am but he treated me on the same level during yeah. that conversation and you know it, we've had a great luck talking to editors on this, po on this podcast all of them are, are like I, i think like aren't like you know how do you say it like they're not very pretentious they're like super down yeah, to earth exactly yeah. exactly we've been super lucky with it and yeah i hope we get another chance to talk to him once he's done with big net uh, yeah yeah i'm sure we will i think he's so he's so receptive of the people that want to hear him talk and he loves to talk obviously but he's also like that excitement i think makes him that much more approachable because he's excited to work on these things and he wants other people to be excited about the stuff that he is excited about yeah. uh so yeah i can't wait to be a part of that conversation considering i missed it this past time because i couldn't wake up <laughs> time <laughs> but yeah i thought uh, the one thing that really stood out to me or thought was really really cool was um that he was a uh, for 10 years he was a professional hockey player And then after he retired, he was like, I'm going to be a film editor. I'm going to be a, a filmmaker, storyteller. And he just basically jumped in with both feet. I thought that was really cool. And, you know, there there will come a time when somebody has to do a, a documentary on Vashi because his life has got a great story also. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's a nice twist, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, for those of you out there, um, we'll put a, a trailer for Big Ned in the in the com in the comments in the description, so you can see yeah. it. But yeah, yeah, it's, and Vash's uh, web Vash's website as well, I think. And Vash's, right? yeah, yeah, for sure. I've been following him for years, and yeah, that's that's definitely someone to to learn from. All Until right. the next time, shoot, shoot a daddy like there is like there's no tomorrow. Oh, tomorrow. <laughs> Thanks for taking time out of your busy day. If you like what you've heard, please rate, review, and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you've listened to this on. 
Your reviews help more people discover this show. You can also follow us on Instagram. Just search for at Cut to Reveal and tell your friends. And if you have any questions or comments, send them to podcast at cuttothepoint.com. And who knows, maybe we'll use them in the future episodes. And as we say around here, until the next time, shoot and edit like there is no tomorrow.